the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm glad to be back behind the mic. was feeling a bit under the weather yesterday, but I'm coming along today. James Blind is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given his office for the cause. Today we're going to talk with Rachel Gressler. She's uh, going to talk with us about confronting police abuse and the requirement of shifting power from police unions may uh, need to be central to that effort. But it's not likely to be. Amy Swearer will also join us to talk about four keys to understanding the defund the police movement. What's meant by it and what are the elements uh, that we might recognize in this effort? She's going to join us. Both of us, uh, both of them, in fact, are going to join us in the five o'clock hour. Well, police unions are under fire as left wing groups push reform or more drastic measures. In the wake of the death of George Floyd, the political left is blasting police unions as roadblocks to reform. We're more interested in protecting and serving their members than the public. Now, they may find some agreement among um, the right as well. Well, the tension is more clear than in uh, Minneapolis, ground zero for the recent unrest, where city council member Steve Fletcher, a leader uh, in calls there to disband the city's police department, took police officers federation of Minneapolis police Bob Kroll to task over a letter sent to members of his union following Floyd's death. Bob Kroll's letter yesterday to the Minneapolis Police Federation membership showed us that rank-and-file officers voted for in their leadership, and it is yet another sign that the department is irredeemably beyond reform, Fletcher said in a recent tweet. Meanwhile, those on the right have backed police unions' message. Tim, uh, rather, Tom Fitton, the president of the conservative organization Judicial Watch, tweeted in support of the New York Police Department, uh, Sergeant's Benevolent Association, as it gave an update on a police officer who was run over by a car during unrest in the city last week. The defense of police unions by conservatives like Fitton and criticism from members of the left for a stark reversal from how they traditionally treat organized labor. And I think there are elements of the uh, unions, and I'm hoping to have time to talk about that today, that do need reform when it comes to being an impediment to removing officers who have run afoul of policy and the law. In other news, um, Secretary of State uh, Barr, he confirms the focused investigation of Antifa and Hammer's dangerous push to defund police. The president says he wants to see police done in a more gentle fashion, policing done rather, and court orders, uh, the court has ordered the implementation of immediate changes in Minneapolis Police Department. The former vice president has come out against defunding police as the movement gains traction on the left, and Georgia state troopers tell protesters in a viral video, I only kneel for God. Well, ex-acting director of national intelligence Grinnell is calling politics in 2020s, in 2020 rather, a fight between Washington and the rest of America. The former acting director of the national intelligence um, agency told Tucker Carlson tonight uh, that in his uh, time in the Trump administration, 
uh, has shown him that the great political struggle is no longer between Republicans and Democrats, but between the District of Columbia and the rest of the U.S. In his first TV interview since leaving the administration, Grinnell explained a tweet he posted Saturday in response to criticism of the president from former Defense Secretary James Mattis. The fact of the matter is we have a real problem in Washington, D.C., because it's a system that is no longer Republicans and Democrats pushing against each other to create good policy, he said. It's a fight between Washington and the rest of America. What we have is a system in Washington where people get jobs if you're um, there, if you know someone and you work your way up, and it's like musical chairs from one agency to another. He added, there is no outside thought, there's no outside perspective. He criticized Trump as a great, um, or rather characterized Trump as a great disruptor to an insular system. He's breaking their system, he said. He doesn't play by their rules. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization's director said on Monday that there should be no sense of complacency amid the coronavirus outbreak and supported his claim by pointing out that there were 136,000 new cases on Sunday, the most so far. More than six months into the pandemic, this is not the time for any country, any area to take its foot off the pedal, he said, according to Reuters. Well, the report pointed out that most of the cases were in South Asia and the Americas. Health officials in the U.S. fear an increase in cases due to the recent unrest over the death of George Floyd in police custody. Only time and testing will tell. In other news, Americans will uh, recognize some of the names linked to U.S. Attorney John Durham's ongoing probe into federal surveillance abuses, Attorney General William Barr said on Tuesday, adding he is very troubled by the findings so far. The Durham team has been working very aggressively to move forward, he told Fox News' Brett Baer in an exclusive interview on Special Report and pledged there will be public disclosures of his findings. I think before the 2016 election, I think we're concerned about the motive uh, force uh, behind the very aggressive investigation that has launched into the Trump campaign without uh, with very thin, slender reed as a basis for it, he told Bear. It seems that the Bureau was sort of spring-loaded at the end of July to drive in there and investigate a campaign, end quote. Well, the Justice Department's watchdog has identified critical errors in every FBI wiretap application that was audited as part of the fallout from the Bureau's heavily flawed investigation into former Trump advisor Carter Page, who was surveilled during the 2016 campaign in part because of largely discredited dossier funded by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee. The uh, secretary confirmed the focused investigation of Antifa as well, Hammer's dangerous push to defund police, he said, and he claimed social media platforms are censoring particular viewpoints and putting their own content in there. He says the FBI was uh, spring-loaded to investigate the Trump campaign, and much, uh, not much has changed since. Meanwhile, the Democratic Senate primary in Georgia was too early to call on Wednesday as John Ossoff held on to approximately 49% of the vote with more ballots coming in amid widespread reports of hours-long lines, voting machine malfunctions, provisional ballot shortages, and absentee ballots failing to arrive in time. Ossoff, whose defeat in 2017 special election was a gut punch to Democrats who flooded his campaign with money, was leading Sarah Riggs, Amico, and Teresa Tomlinson. Uh, They each have roughly 13% of the counted vote, and candidates need 50% of the vote to avoid a runoff. One of the state's largest counties, DeKalb, in the metro Atlanta area, has yet to report any results as of early Wednesday. As of um, the night wound down, the races were also held in South uh, Carolina, Nevada, and West Virginia. It became evident as the uh, longstanding nationwide wrangle over voting rights and election security had come 
to a head in Georgia, where a messy primary and partisan finger-pointing offered an unsettling preview of a November contest when battleground states could face potentially record turnout. And how that turnout reveals itself remains yet to be seen. Will it be in person, by mail? Again, an open question. Well, cities are cutting police as chaos is growing and will make it more difficult for police officers to do their job. Portland, the home of Antifa, just got a little more cozy with the violent thugs, as the mayor announced. They're going to cut the police department by $7 million. The mayor of Los Angeles has upped that um, uh, council uh, that to $150 million uh, cut to those protecting the city. And from a related story, while L.A. Council President uh, Nuri Martinez uh, was filing a motion late uh, last week, rather, seeking to cut $150 million from the LAPD budget. She had an LAPD unit standing watch outside her home, providing uh, the zone um, from folks uh, in the area who were behaving violently. So interestingly enough, she has access to and called upon law enforcement to protect her and hers, but doesn't want uh, others in that area to have the same right. In Seattle, um, uh, rioters uh, have zoned um, off an area of their own. From the story, one local activist tweeted from inside local businesses and residents to agree to, well, disaffiliate from Seattle, basically. It's an action that remains uh, up for debate, with many online suggesting that they've been intimidated into compliance in the absence of actual law enforcement. Journalists attempting to cover uh, the situation um, have had some difficulty. There's much more to be said about that, but I'll leave it at that. Also coming up uh, in our next couple of segments, not the next one, but later this hour, we'll hear a classic interview with Michael Brown, Job, the fight um, to challenge God, a new translation and commentary. Michael Brown joining us later in the program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. With the ACLU and some radical groups are upset with Democrats' efforts to reform the police. It doesn't uh, include dismantling or defunding altogether. From the Wall Street Journal, a political drive to defund police risks a return to the high crime era of the 1960s and 70s that damaged so many American cities. Millennials and minorities in big cities have benefited tremendously from the hard work of Democratic mayors and police chiefs 20 to 30 years ago to reduce crime. Yet, progressives have now run most big cities Uh, Now running most big cities have pushed relaxed enforcement of victimless crimes, and now they want to go further. The Daily Caller contacted every Senate Democrat asking if they would consider defunding the police after a majority of the Minneapolis City Council pledged to do just that. Um, uh, Not one Democrat responded or condemned the Minneapolis City Council for pushing the defund law enforcement, nor did they endorse it. Franklin Graham says we need to pray for our law enforcement, encourage them. The Bible says blessed are the peacemakers if, in fact, they are keeping the peace. This is the calling many of them have answered with their lives. And the media are deeply concerned about uh, Trump rallies that could cause coronavirus outbreak. I mean, that's touching because clearly they're not concerned about those who are protesting and rioting, but they are concerned about the Trump rallies and the spread of COVID-19. NPR, President Trump will hit the campaign trail this month, despite the deadly coronavirus pandemic, which continues to impact the lives and livelihoods of households across the country. The rallies will be tremendous, a campaign manager uh, said. 
Uh, ABC News says President Trump, uh, Trump's campaign plans to resume holds ra- holding rallies in the next two weeks, with advisors banking on massive protests in recent weeks, dampening criticism over holding large in-person events amid COVID-19 pandemic, multiple sources say. Now, of course, the networks are not making any mention of that during this season of demonstration and protest. Democrats have taken the need to prove their support for George Floyd in a photo op after criticizing the president for his photo op holding a Bible in front of a church. Um, After kneeling, Nancy Pelosi needed help standing up. Well, that's understandable. I might need help as well. But Matt Vespa points out the group Mostly White wore kente cloth, its traditional African garb, which uh, they had no business wearing. It was a sad and pathetic exercise in pandering, and oh yes, black voters noticed. David Harsini uh, says, kneeling in front of our fellow citizens in cult-like displays of self-flagellation, the kind we saw in Bethesda, North Carolina, where white people begged for absolution while washing their feet of other black neighbors, is antithetical to the egalitarian ideals we should be thriving, striving rather to achieve. And some protesters are upset that police are kneeling with them in solidarity. Meanwhile, from Texas Governor Greg Abbott, today I spent time with the Floyd family. They are wonderful, God-loving people. They will be the centerpiece of helping America bridge our racial divide and ensure equality, justice, fairness for everyone in America and ensure what happened in Minneapolis never happens in Texas. Now, the interesting thing is they are irrelevant to many who are part of the movement uh, to change things. They are an impediment in a sense because they are not walking in lockstep against some of the violent reforms and extreme reforms that are being called for. Well, a man has been arrested and charged in the arson and burning of the uh, Minneapolis Police Department. And by the way, he's not African-American. He's Caucasian. From the story, Brandon Michael Wolf faces federal charges of aiding and abetting arson. The U.S. Attorney's Office, District of Minnesota, announced on Monday he was taken into custody on Wednesday after officers said the St. Paul Police Department responded to a call made by a home improvement store where Wolf previously worked as a security guard before being fired earlier that day according to the criminal complaint. COVID-19 deaths are dropping as treatment improves. A new study finds that novel coronavirus has become less lethal over the past few months. While there's no evidence that mutations are making the virus less deadly, treatments have improved enormously and scientists have learned more. That doesn't mean we're finished with the pandemic, just that they're treating it more effectively. Dabo Sweeney is defending himself against the uh, latest from Black Lives Matter. Uh, From the story, anybody who has been in our program, they know that there are two words that I don't want to hear, Sweeney said. There are two in particular that I will absolutely call you out on. One, he says, is the N-word, and the other is the word for, uh, is GD, which are the initials of words that are profane to a holy God. I would fire a coach immediately if he called a player the N-word, no questions asked. That did not happen, absolutely did not. He's been accused of permitting that to happen on his watch. Uh, Meanwhile, let's see, I thought I had here, here we go. Meanwhile, on this day in history, 1935, Alcoholics Anonymous is founded in Akron, Ohio, by Dr. Robert Hallbrook Smith and William Griffith Wilson. 1967, six days of war in the Mideast involving Israel, Syria, Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq end as Israel and Syria accept a United Nations-mediated ceasefire. On this day in history, 1971, President Richard M. Nixon lifts a two-decades-old trade embargo on China. 
1977, James Earl Ray, the convicted assassin of Martin Luther King Jr., escapes from Brushy Mountain State Prison in Tennessee after six, uh, rather with six others. He would be recaptured on the 13th of June. Well, a statement from a World Health Organization official this week about coronavirus transmission by asymptomatic individuals being very rare was not correct. So says America's leading infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci. We know from epidemiological study that uh, they can transmit to someone who is uninfected even when they're without symptoms. He's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Uh, he was speaking on ABC's Good Morning America on Wednesday and so and said so to make a statement to say that's a rare event was not correct. Well, his remarks come after comments made on Monday by Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove, a World Health Organization infectious disease epidemiologist, caused mass confusion. At a news conference, she said that the spread of coronavirus by people not showing uh, symptoms appears to be rare. We have a number of reports from countries uh, who are doing very detailed contact tracing. They are following asymptomatic cases. They are following contacts, and they do not, um, uh, they are not finding secondary transmission onward. We're constantly looking at this data, and we're trying to get more information from countries to truly answer the question, she added. Well, during his appearance on Good Morning America, Fauci said that current evidence shows that 25 to 45 percent of infected people are likely asymptomatic, echoing Van Kerkhove when she clarified her comments on Tuesday. Well, some modeling groups estimate some 40 percent of virus transmissions may be due to asymptomatic people, Van Kerkhove did not include that figure on Monday, but wanted to make sure she included it in her clarification, which was absolutely necessary. Meanwhile, Oregon Governor Kate Brown has announced comprehensive coronavirus testing, a plan for long-term care facilities. The governor announced that Oregon will be implementing a comprehensive testing plan to protect the residents and staff of long-term care facilities, prioritizing those facilities at greatest risk for outbreaks. Now, this is pretty late in the game, but it is refreshing to see that we're at least in the game in this area. From the beginning of this pandemic, it has been one of my top priorities to protect the residents and staff of long-term care facilities. The governor said we took early and swift action to enact some of the strictest visitation policies in the country in the first days of Oregon's outbreak. I know it has been incredibly hard for residents and their families to not be able to see their loved ones, but even with those protocols in place, she went on to say... Uh, The residents of long-term care facilities are particularly at high risk for serious illness and death due to this disease. I have directed, again quoting the governor, the Oregon Health Authority and the Department of Human Services to implement a plan to test all residents and staff of long-term care facilities, starting with facilities at the highest risk. Expanding testing is an essential first step that will allow us to examine how visitation policies can be safely and incrementally Eased. The governor uh, went on from there with more details of the plan that she believes will help protect this um, vulnerable community. Meanwhile, the Multnomah County leaders are reevaluating their phase one application. Please let us go. Wednesday's reevaluation was planned before the county submitted its application to phase one. Multnomah County leaders are uh, uh, evaluating or rather reevaluating the progress toward entering phase one of uh, Oregon's reopening plan during a meeting today. The county board plans to meet to discuss uh, plans, um, uh, briefing the uh, uh, county uh, in targeting Friday, a couple of days from now, to begin that gradual reopening process that uh, Multnomah County is lagging behind on. 
if Multnomah County enters phase one as planned, uh, restrictions will be eased on restaurants and bars, barbers, salons and massage businesses, uh, gyms and fitness centers, in-person gatherings of up to 25 um, no travel, however. After entering Phase 1, the county will need to wait at least 21 days before it's eligible to enter Phase 2. And we are far behind other counties who are now uh, in the early days of Phase 2. That's Multnomah County. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear a conversation with Michael Brown, author of Job, The Faith to Challenge God, a classic uh, interview on the New Testament and a new commentary that's coming up next. We'll also hear in the five o'clock hour from Rachel Gresler on confronting police abuse and the shift of power from police unions required to do so. We'll talk with Amy Swearer on four keys to understanding how to defund the police movement is uh, being uh, defined and how it's being applied and understood. All of that coming up right here on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, just as there was no man on earth like Job, there is no book on earth like the book of Job. Well, in this new commentary written by my uh, next guest, biblical scholar Dr. Michael Brown, he brings Job to life for the 21st century reader, exploring the raw spirituality of the man, his extraordinary faith, his friends' theological errors, the mysteries of God's speeches, and the unique answers to the problem of suffering offered in the book of Job. Undergirded by solid Hebrew Hebrew scholarship, but written with clarity for all serious students of Scripture. The commentary provides an important introduction to the study of Job, a new translation, a series of theological reflections, and additional exegetical essays providing in-depth discussion of key passages. We're talking about the book, Job, The Faith to Challenge God, a new translation and commentary by Dr. Michael Brown. Dr. Brown is president of Fire School of Ministry and has served as adjunct professor at seven leading seminaries. He holds Ph.D. from New York University, hosts The Line of Fire, a daily talk show, and is the author of three dozen books and more than a thousand articles. He is considered a leading Messianic Jewish apologist and joins us today to talk about this remarkable book, Job, The Faith to Challenge God. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my joy to, to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Well, what uh, for you um, has been most fascinating about the book of Job? I think many of us try to avoid it altogether because it can be confusing and one might dare to say depressing. Yeah, when I was a, a new believer and I started reading through the Bible, Job got my attention. You know, the initial two chapters are amazing. Here's this righteous man, Job, and the devil challenges God and everything is taken from Job, but he still worships and then he, he curses the day he was born, the next chapter. But then the next two chapters, the, the first of the friends lovingly rebukes Job. And I thought, yeah, I like what he said. And then Job responds to the friend, and I thought, yeah, I like what he said. And then the <laughs> next friend comes and rebukes Job, and I thought, well, I agree with that. And then I would agree with Job, and I thought, okay, there, there's something more going on here. And then Elihu comes on at the end, he kind of unannounced this new guy, and he speaks for several chapters, and was he a good guy or a bad guy? Did, did, did he prepare the way for the Lord or get in God's way? And then God speaks, and instead of answering Job's questions, he talks about nature, he talks about these creatures, behemoth and Leviathan, and then Job repents, and it's and then God restores. So it, what is going on here? And yet, when you start to understand the book, as I said at the beginning of the, the introduction to the book, just as there's no man on earth like Job, that's what God said to Satan, there's no book like the book of Job. And when you begin to understand it and see 
the depth of Job's faith, and yet it was a faith that caused him to challenge God. And part of his challenge, God says, you were saying the right things about me. And on the other hand, God rebukes him. It's fascinating. It's relevant. And, and I think especially when people are afraid to ask questions and they think they're not being spiritual if they ask questions, this is a book that says, let's get it out because God knows what's really going on in the hearts anyway. I think one of the things that's most challenging about the book of Job is the drama that plays out in the story. Satan apparently has access to God. What does this tell us in terms of the uh, negotiation, if I can use the term, um, that results in Job's suffering? Yeah, well, the first question is, can Satan just do that to us? That's what Christians would worry about. Mm -hmm. You know, is it possible Satan is just going to come and do that to me? Obviously, we believe that on this side of the cross with the death and resurrection of Jesus, that, that Satan would not have that kind of access to us because we have authority over him. At the same time, the larger message of Job is telling us that sometimes inexplicable things happen to righteous people. And we can't do what the friends did and turn around and say, oh, well, Job, you must be a terrible sinner. There's something wrong with you. And then we can't do what Job did to say to God, well, there must be something wrong with you. There's something more going on, and that's part of what we learn here. But what we have to understand is just as Satan is allowed to attack uh, Job, that through history there are things that happen to us, things that we go through, and we don't know why we were allowed to go through them. Why, why is Satan even around? Why didn't God just destroy him when he fell? Mm-hmm. There's something larger where God brings good out of this, and that God ultimately knew that in the end, although Job would go to hell and back, so to say, and suffer incredibly, that in the end, good would come out of it, even greater good, and Job would know God in a deeper way than he ever had. So what Satan means for evil, God intends for greater good. Can you tell us the timeline of the book of Job? Some say it predates many of the books of the Bible, and where it's placed in the, the canonized scripture uh, is sort of displaced. When did these events take place, and why is it important for us to understand the message of Job in understanding the challenge we face as uh, believers and the, the opposition that we face as followers of Christ? All right, so number one, the events of Job seem to be quite ancient, as, as in patriarchal times before there is a nation of Israel, Job and his friends are the picture painted of them as if they are non-Israelites living in ancient patriarchal times. That's when the events took place. But contrary to the idea that Job is the oldest book in the Bible in terms of when it was written, it's very clear that it was written much later. It may have been written close to the time of the Babylonian exile thereabout. And, and, and we know this for quite a few reasons, that the actual writing of it, even though it uses kind of, a, of a, an ancient form of Hebrew, it's actually written much later. And it could even be tied in with the time of exile because of the problem of suffering that that raised. But what, what the book of Job is saying to every believer today is, is that it, you have the ability before God to be yourself in his presence. Yes, Job is rebuked for speaking wrongly about God, and that he, he calls him a tyrant and a monster and accuses God of being behind all the injustice and evil in the world. So he speaks wrongly about God and is rebuked for it. 
But on the other hand, one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, and I spent a lot of time on this, Job 42.7, God rebukes the three friends and says, you did not speak what was right about me as did my servant Job. So how did Job speak rightly about God? And the real answer seems to be that he knew that if God was truly the God he believed him to be, then these things should not be happening the way they did, that there must be some justice in God's universe, otherwise God was not the God that Job believed in. And that's telling me that ultimately, if you have really and truly trusted God with your life and believe him to be a good God, that that goodness will be manifest that you may pass through valleys and difficulties and challenges where it seems like God is not who you thought he was, but hang on and continue to worship him because he will demonstrate his goodness either in this world or the world to come. You write about a coherent and redemptive theology of suffering. What do you mean by that? Well, on the one hand, suffering by itself is negative. Nobody wishes disaster on a loved one. No one hopes for sickness and pain and hardship. And yet, in the book of Job, there is a theology of suffering. On the one hand, when you suffer for righteousness, Job was actually suffering because he was a righteous man. And when there is suffering for righteousness, your attitude towards it ultimately is different. Satan became a target, uh, excuse me, Job became a target for Satan because he stood out on the earth as a righteous man. And Satan, the adversary, is challenging the Lord as if to say, you don't, you don't have any righteous people on the earth. You don't have any good people on the earth. No one is serving you without ulterior motives. They just serve you because of the benefits. So it is Job's righteousness and faith that single him out for attack. And yet what comes out of this is a greater intimacy with God and an understanding that suffering in itself can be negative, but can cause greater growth in character and in relationship with God as a result, and even a witness to a watching world. How would you describe Job's response? Was he dismissive? Was he defiant? Perhaps a combination of the two? Um, Ultimately, how would you describe his uh, response to the events that were unfolding that affected not only him personally and his physical life, but his family as well? So initially, he just worships. He worships the Lord, and that's all that he knows to do. He's not going to speak evil of him, and he's making clear, I serve God because he's God, and I do what's right because it's right, not because of the reward. As things go on, and the friends begin to speak, and the friends begin to challenge, and it's fascinating that the friends speak always in the third person about God. He's this, he's this, he's this. Job will often speak to God and address him. So he's absolutely defiant, but you could call it defiant faith. And that's why the subtitle of the commentary is The Faith to Challenge God. And I have a theological reflection, one of many in the back of the the commentary, uh, called Challenging God as an Act of Faith. And now this may sound very odd in, in the ears of Christians, Uh, because challenging God is is a negative. We trust him, we worship him, we honor him, we know he's good, he rules, he reigns, he's king, he he never does wrong, so therefore we praise him and worship him no matter what. There's also a side, though, of wrestling with God, Mm -hmm. and that's what Job does. So he goes too far. He definitely sins, but there was a faith in his defiance. I think it's important people realize that Job 
of the poetic chapters where he battles with his friends and with God is just as much a man of faith as the Job in the opening chapters who just worshipped and said nothing else. Mm. We're talking with Dr. Michael Brown, his latest book, Job, The Faith to Challenge God, a new translation and commentary. We're going to continue that conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Michael Brown, author of Job, The Faith to Challenge God. Uh, it offers a, a new translation and commentary as well. Dr. R. Kendall said of the book, Dr. Michael Brown's commentary on Job is immensely learned, very readable. It will find its place alongside the best commentaries on Job ever written. And I would certainly agree. I think it's important to emphasize it's readable and approachable, but it certainly is rigorous in its approach um, as well. Let's talk a bit about um, Job's friends, his comforters, if you will. Uh, Job's so-called friends make some false assumptions about his suffering. What can we learn from them about the, their misunderstanding of the events that were they were witnessing and their understanding of God in the, the broader context of what their friend once had enjoyed as a righteous man and now had been stripped of entirely? Yeah, we can see that you can have a theological orthodoxy that does more harm than good. That for the friends, they only knew two options. That Job was a really righteous man, and therefore he was extravagantly blessed. Now he's extravagantly punished. He must be a really wicked man. And if you look through the Old Testament, the blessings and the curses, so blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, the Psalms and Proverbs, it seems to reinforce this, that the righteous will be blessed and the wicked will be cursed. But, but there is more to the story than just that, which is why you have the rest of the Bible unfolding mm-hmm. these things, which is why you have the book of Job. But sometimes we can do that same thing. Oh, well, if that person, that, that Christian, they got in a car wreck or the kids were killed or this one died of cancer, they must be doing something wrong. Why do we say that? Sometimes we say it because our own faith is so fragile. We don't want to think that something bad could happen to us. Therefore, we have to demonize the other person. And that's what ultimately happened with Job. And the more they spoke against him and, and misrepresented God, then Job had to fight back. And the more Job fought back, then he started to sin with his lips. And then this confirmed to the friends, oh, he is a sinner. What should have happened is they should have sat with him. As, as, as has often been said, they were doing great until they opened their mouths. <laughs> you know, they sit with him silently for seven days. They were obviously true friends. They cared. Then what do you tell someone in suffering and agony? Say, we love you. We're here for you. You, you don't have to theologize at that moment. You don't have to quote scripture. You don't have to tell them, well, God is this. And you, maybe you can say, look, I know it makes no sense. And you must feel like God's a million miles away, but let's hold on together. We love you. That's the right response. And if someone has sinned and brought evil on themselves, that will, that will become self-evident. If somebody robbed a bank and now the police are after you, okay, you'll, you'll find out you're suffering for your sins. But our default thing should be don't do what the friends did. Show love, show solidarity, and say let's hang on to God together and get through this. And yet we still, having the witness of the book of Job, we still feel compelled to, in very short order, come up with reasonable explanations for events that 
uh, a friend or family member is experiencing, whether that's to console ourselves or to somehow defend God. Uh, I'm not sure we learn the lesson from Job's friends um, as we read uh, the mistakes that they made in their effort to try to comfort him and make sense of events. Yeah, one thing that's very common with us as believers is we, we want to have answers for everything and put things in a nice little box. And one of the great messages of the book of Job, and this is what God shows Job, it's not to bully him or intimidate him, but to say, Job, you really don't know how this whole thing runs. You know very, very little bit about, about the universe, about the world. You know very, very little. And that's where we need to have the confidence to say, I'm going to worship God even when everything seems to be going wrong. I'm going to worship God and praise him because he's good, even though it looks very dark right now. And, and there, are, there are critics, there are theologians, especially after the Holocaust, that don't like the end of Job because it's too, it's too happy. Wait a second. Now he lives happily ever after. Doesn't that undo the whole message? No, it doesn't. Because God will manifest his goodness either in this world or the world to come. And we will enjoy his kindness and his goodness and his love forever and ever. But that means that when I go through rocky times, when my experience seems to be the exact opposite, where the light that I was expecting becomes darkness, where the prayers we were sure were going to be answered come crashing down at our feet, that's where we learn from Job. God will be vindicated in the end, and he will show himself to be good. One of the things that you point out in the book, Job, the Faith to Challenge God, is Job's oft-quoted phrase, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And you make the point that this is based on a false assumption. Where does he go wrong in that statement that is so often admired because it says that whatever happens, I'm going to continue to trust in God? Where did Job go wrong? On the one hand, Job does say that that when he's tried, he's going to come forth like gold. He says that in the 23rd chapter. But Job 13, 15, if you look in 20 different English translations, you'll see the translations are all over the place. And really, when you read the chapter, what he wants to do is argue it out with God. And, and as I translate it, and, and you'll see others uh, agree, that he's really saying here, look, he's going to kill me. I'm waiting for it expectantly, yet... I will argue my ways to his face. And then he says, and this will work out for my salvation since no godless person could ever come before him. So on the one hand, he knows if he's going to challenge God, he's going to die. But he feels if he could just get before God and argue his case because there's justice in God's universe, God will bring things around in the right way. But then by the end of the chapter, he's like, it's never going to happen. There's no way that I'm going to have an audience with God. So there's, there's truth and there's error. And, and we find that over and over in Job. We find it again in the 16th chapter where he feels sure there must be some heavenly witness, some mediator who will stand up on his behalf. Obviously, we think immediately of Jesus. And then Job 19, where his faith rises yet again, he goes, I know that my Redeemer lives. And, and that's the amazing thing in the midst of this agonizing faith battle that he runs from God to God. He accuses God of being a monster, but then he turns and said, but I know my Redeemer lives. This is part of the majesty and wonder of the book of Job. Mm. Now, at the end of the book, God steps in. He sets things straight. He speaks 
Um, what does he say that can be helpful to us as we try to make sense of suffering in the 21st century in our time? Well, we have the witness of Scripture. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have a relationship with a high priest who uh, sits at the right hand of the Father and, and ministers on our behalf. Um, what can we learn from what God says to Job in our time? Well, I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral and someone's holding a little baby there. And as you're in a state of mourning, you look up and you see that little life and maybe those eyes look at you and there's that smile. God wants Job to see the beauty and the majesty and the intricacy and the care of his creation to say, hey, Job, I, I don't just let random crazy things happen. There's an order. There's a plan. There's a beauty. It is who God is. For us, we look at the cross and we recognize in the midst of the madness, there is love demonstrated. And then these creatures, behemoth, Leviathan, God ultimately has mastery over all the powers of darkness and the powers of chaos and will ultimately subdue them. God will subdue the storm. God will bring beauty out. This is who he is. And what we have to do in the midst of trials some of which go on for days, some of which go on for decades, is remember the lessons of Job, remember the God of Job. And if we cultivate relationship with him, then we will see in the end, in this world and the world to come, we will see the reality of our faith and the fact that all the good that we believed about God was accurate and true. Mm. I know how I would answer the question, but let me ask you, to whom, Job, the faith to challenge God is written? Is it for the serious uh, follower of Jesus who wants to, who loves the Scripture and wants to understand the book of Job? Or is this a more scholarly volume um, that's for those who are uh, perhaps in a higher academic um, study? Yeah, the, those in the higher academic study can use it and will learn from it, but I wrote it for everyone else. In fact, I wrote the whole thing and we realized it was too academic. I went and redid the whole commentary so that every interested student in the book of Job can dig in and learn and be changed. Well, and again, I, I mentioned I know how I would answer the question, and I think you're absolutely right. It's approachable and understandable from uh, the rest, of, or rather for the rest of us. Again, we're talking about Job, the faith to challenge God, a new translation and commentary. Dr. Michael Brown, thank you so much for your work and for talking with us today. Oh, and thank you for your interest. I really appreciate it. Again, the book is published by Hendrickson Academic. Job, The Faith to Challenge God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. In this hour, we're going to talk with Rachel Gressler in just a moment about um, confronting uh, one of the sources of challenge within police departments across the country. We'll also talk with Amy Swearer. She's going to talk with us about how we can understand what defund the police movement is actually calling for. It may not be a singular thing, but a a set of um, ideas, and we'll try to sort through all of that in just a moment. Well, confronting police abuse requires shifting power from police unions. That's what the headline read in a Daily Signal piece by Rachel Gresler um, earlier this week. One of the challenges right now is coming up with policy to address the challenges, the 
that um, people all across the country uh, acknowledge needs to be confronted. Well, how do we do that? And are we willing to look in every area where that is needed? Well, Rachel Gresler is a research fellow in economics, budget and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. She joins us now to talk about her column and uh, what we need to do to react to cases of police misconduct and brutality when they do come to light. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Georgie. Well, I appreciated uh, your column in the Daily Signal in which you acknowledge the need for reform, but touch on an area that uh, historically we've been reluctant to uh, to address, and that is how police unions impact certain aspects of whether or not uh, police officers can be disciplined as necessary. Uh, you point out and remind us that Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry referred to it as this one nearly um, impenetrable barrier, which is the union contract and the way it's set up. Explain what he meant by that. Yeah, so as policymakers across the country are looking at this and even federal lawmakers in Congress, you know, I think that not enough focus is drilling down to what Mayor Frey called this one impenetrable barrier, which is a very local level, you know, each police department having this contract with their union that oftentimes is delegating a lot of the management roles and the oversight and accountability and even some of the disciplinary measures to the union instead of that police chief and that agency being able to be the ones in charge of those things. And while it's not widely reported, it is widely researched and acknowledged, you know, both in academia and just in the examples that are out there, that time and again, these union contracts come in to, you know, limit the ability of the agencies to account for the officers, to discipline them. Sometimes they even fire them and they're forced to rehire them. You know, Washington Post article pointed out that out of 1,881 police officers who had been terminated, one in four of them were forced to be reinstated as they appealed through their union. And just the place that that puts those police chiefs in, taking away, you know, what they know to be the best decisions and what they know to be best to protect their community members, it really undermines their authority and prevents them from doing what is needed for the community and for that police agency. Now, you point out that it's important to remember that not all complaints filed against police officers have merit, but that when complaints are filed, they need to be thoroughly investigated. And when uh, police officers, like two of the officers who are, are former police officers who have been charged in the George Floyd case, uh, had complaints against them, it's it's nearly impossible for a chief, although not entirely, it's nearly impossible for a chief of police to have these officers removed. And that's because the unions are doing more than, than um, collective bargaining over salary, but other areas as well that make it very difficult to hold them accountable. Exactly. And I do want to preface all of this in this discussion with, you know, just the great respect and gratitude that I and I think most people have for police officers, the overwhelming majority of whom are heroes who put their lives on the line protecting the communities in which they live and serve. And yet there are instances in which there is abuse and brutality that needs to be appropriately addressed. And the problem comes in when you have these complaints and once they are vetted and you know that it's not just a drug dealer complaining about a cop that they don't want to be pursuing them any longer. But if it's a legitimate complaint, oftentimes the contracts include provisions that will maybe not let that complaint see the light of day. They will obstruct the ability of the chief of police to institute discipline, they'll erase discipline records, 
They insert elevated standards of review to protect police officers from any discipline. They ban civilian oversight. You know, there's all these provisions, and not in every single contract, but they are, you know, widely out there, and they are frustrating those people who are supposed to be holding the officers accountable, preventing them from being able to do that. Now, historically, police unions negotiated compensation provisions, but that has widened over uh, time, as you write, uh, in order to um, make up for uh, increases in salary that uh, municipalities were either unwilling or unable to give to police officers. And so we find ourselves across the country in a situation where um, cities have given away their capacity, their power, if you will, to weed out officers which reflects all the officers, the majority of whom, as you pointed out, are legitimate peace officers and serving the public good. Yes. And, you know, a former Minneapolis police chief is somebody who explained it well, saying that, you know, during recessions, the city would end up giving the union management rights in lieu of money or other compensation. And that that is when the trouble started. And, it, you know, incrementally over time, this you know, accumulates year after year. And then suddenly, you know, he said there's all these hoops which make it far more difficult for the chiefs to sustain discipline and you end up having cases where even when they are successfully able to enforce discipline or even to remove a problematic officer, you know, another police chief described how he was forced to reinstate an officer that he had fired not once, but twice. And just how that undermines the authority and prevents them from creating the culture in the community policing that they want. Are you seeing serious, uh, I know that there's some criticism on the left of police unions, but are you seeing serious discussion uh, about this aspect that is making it challenging for uh, leadership within law enforcement to weed out um, bad officers? Uh, or are we just seeing um, slogans mm-hmm. being made and very little else in terms of progress? Unfortunately, I don't see this issue being discussed in the big headlines. Instead, the focus is on, you know, which tactics can we ban police officers from using? Um, You know, what can the federal government do? What type of culture policies can we put in place? What type of programs to train the officers? When the reality is you have to get to the root of the problem. And while there are groups, both on the left and the right, that will acknowledge this, you know, the American Civil Liberties Union has come out and said, that the contracts, the union contracts, have been vehicles for rolling back accountability and transparency and civilian oversight. Um, and there are plenty of academics that have pointed out these problems, saying that the contracts have led to a 40% increase in violent incidents of misconduct. Um, but yet it hasn't elevated some national attention. And I think part of it is, is when you look at some of the local police departments that have um, taken on reform efforts, in instances, the union has been backfired, and whether it's withdrawing funding from political candidates or, you know, launching attack campaigns to get them out of office, they have been able to use their power and their influence to prevent the reform that needs to take place happening. Even instances where there have been civil rights violations and the federal government has come in through consent decrees, you know, they have documented that about, you know, 40% of those cases the reforms that they have tried to implement have been frustrated through the police union contracts who will, you know, either refuse to do certain things or they'll issue, they'll sue um, to try and get those provisions that are supposed to be implemented not from happening. And so, you know, it's just this persistence of fighting back against anything that takes away the union's authority. And that's where we really need bold 
public officials and policymakers to be willing to take them on and look at what components of each of these local level contracts are problematic and to remove those. Well, it's uh, it's frustrating to see um, to see this remaining in place and not hearing many, if any, voices that are pointing out this uh, this challenge. Well, Rachel, I appreciate your helping us to better understand one aspect of uh, the challenge ahead as we seek to protect those officers who are doing a great job and to weed out those who should not be donning a uniform. Thank you. Thank you, Jardine. Again, Rachel Bresler is a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we'll talk with Amy Swearer. We'll talk about some keys to understanding the defund the police movement. What does it actually mean? Well, I'm not sure there's a singular definition, but we'll try to get to the bottom of it in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're hearing calls for defunding the police. Now, what does that mean? It means different things to different people, but it may or may not be as dramatic as one might assume, depending on who's using the words. Well, here to help us understand what defund the police, the movement stands for, uh, is my guest, Amy Swearer. She is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, defund the the police is the uh, newest rallying cry for the left. It's no longer confined to radicals and advocate, I should say, activists, uh, but it's now widely being used, but not often defined. Uh, Is there a clear, singular understanding of what this this phrase means, or is it more nuanced? So I'm not sure that there is one uh, overarching, complete definition of what this means, because what we are seeing... Uh, is that for many advocates uh, of defund the police, what they're saying is we don't mean this literally. It's just a rallying cry. Uh, That means uh, something more akin to to what a lot of people want and what could be a bipartisan reform effort in terms of just reforming the police, rethinking how we do policing in this country. But unfortunately, there are, I, I think, uh, a, a small but significant number of people who mean quite literally we need to strip funding from police departments or get rid of police departments or, um, you know, sort of go about another route without law enforcement. And so it's kind of this broad spectrum of what it means. But I think most people, when they're saying this, don't seem to be saying it as a literal idea. One exception might be in Minneapolis, um, where it's a near certainty that police will be defunded. Are there other areas where that is the case? And what are they offering as an alternative for the safety of residents in Minneapolis? Well, so from what I've seen, it's still unclear what the Minneapolis City Council means when they say they are going to vote to uh, to, to strip the police department, to abolish the police department. Uh, my guess is there will still be some sort of reformed law enforcement capacity. Um, it, it would seem quite um borderline insane to a lot of people to say we are not going to have anybody to address violent crimes in this country or or in the city of Minneapolis. Um, But what they appear to be trying to do is to have just a different type of system that incorporates more mental health um, and and social services and sort of rethinking how they do police. But I, I think, again, as you sort of suggested, it's really up in the air about what this means as a concrete idea of what this is going to look like in Minneapolis. And I I just think right now, because we don't have that policy in front of us, it's very unclear. And I think it's, it's 
quite scary for a lot of people who don't know what that might look like. Yeah, and when pressed, the city council members themselves could not uh, state what they meant by that. They have a uh, veto-proof majority, and one of them is quoted as saying, we're committed to engaging with every willing community member in the city of Minneapolis over the next year to identify what safety looks like for you. So over the course of a year, they're going to figure this out. Uh, We are here today to begin the process of ending the Minneapolis Police Department and creating a new transformative model. Now, what happens in the interim, I think, is what's terrifying a lot of people because there's no clarity there. Now, the mayor, on the other hand, Jacob Fry, uh, he tried to speak to a crowd on Saturday to say he's not in favor of this. He was shouted down. Um, So, again, there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty about the future in Minneapolis. Are there other areas following this example? So I know that there are a number of places such as in in L.A. and and various communities in California um, and, frankly, all throughout the West Coast where you've seen communities sort of call on leaders to do this. Um, But thus far, I'm not aware of any other city councils or or state legislators that that have taken this on. I think what we have seen in the past, um, though couched under very different terms, in communities like Camden, New Jersey, for for example, um, a similar concept of rethinking and sort of redoing how the community views the police department. Um, but, but again, it was couched under very different terms. And so I think it will be interesting to see whether this turns out to be sort of the more extreme of, well, we have really no law enforcement capacities or whether in the end this ends up being just sort of a, a police department that also has incorporated other aspects of reform, and they're just going to sort of call it a different thing from now on. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about what's happening in Congress. Uh, House Democrats uh, have taken a less extreme approach. They've announced legislation earlier this week that was crafted by the Congressional Black Caucus. Tell us a little bit about the reforms that they are suggesting that are far less radical than some that we're hearing chanted from uh, demonstrations around the country. Sure. So uh, there, this is a, a very big bill. There's, there's a lot in there. But I think there are some things that, that are actually pretty good when you look at them. So some of it would be mandating that federal funds given to police departments are used uh, to incorporate body cameras, which uh, is a policy that has in many cases facilitated transparency. Um, it has looked at sort of rethinking use of force guidelines, de-escalation guidelines, um, sort of the, the restraint holds that law enforcement officers can use. Um, so there are some good things in there that I think look more more specifically at concrete areas of reform. Um, though again, I, I don't think it's a perfect bill, but it is at least um, as as a concept more sound than this idea of you know just stripping funding from police departments. Where is public opinion in all of this? Are they in favor, generally speaking, of defund the police as we try to understand what that actually means? Well, so again, it depends on how you're defining defund the police. So we've seen some very interesting polls come out that when you you look at, um, I think it was a YouGov poll from the last couple of days that asked people, are you in favor of stripping funding from police departments? It's a very, very low percentage of people in favor. I think something like 16% of Democrats, 13 or 14% of Republicans. Um, but I think when you look at this in terms of the less literal approach, this idea of you know, how do we reform policing in the United States? How do we look at more concrete ideas for reform that are, are more practical um, and less dangerous to communities? That, generally speaking, has bipartisan and I think broad support. Um, but, it, but it has to do, again, with how you're defining that concept of defunding or abolishing the police. 
your colleague recently uh, wrote a column for the Daily Signal. Um, that's Fred Lucas, in which he points out that, as you have, the defunding police forces seems to mean different things to different advocates. And there's an effort to try to clarify what it means to those who are at the top of the uh, the, the protest movement. Um, uh, Patrice Cullors, for example, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, said the goal was about relocation of funding. So it's shifting funding away from law enforcement into areas where uh, law enforcement would otherwise be concentrated. And he bases that on the notion that crime is the result of people de- being deprived of what they need. It's not one's nature. It's you're being deprived of something you need. And therefore, if your needs are met, then crime will, will be reduced. Um, is that, as far as you know, is that resonating with most people in terms of reducing law enforcement capacity and presence in favor of shifting those resources to provide for needy communities or individuals? So I, I think from what I've seen, the public tends to support both of these. So so instead of defunding the police, say we are going to fund the police adequately. We're going to give them the resources they need to fight violent crime. But then at the same time, realizing that part of enabling the police to do their job is to make sure that they're not having to do things that aren't their job. So, for example, investing in in mental health and social services in communities um, that then, you know, when we have professionals dedicated to that, it sort of takes that burden off of police so that they can deal with more more violent, more severe, serious things that are more up their alley. And so I think when you look at where the public falls on this, it tends to be in favor of both those those aspects of funding, if that makes sense. So instead of yeah. one or the other, they tend to see it as a both and. Are you optimistic that we will settle on reasonable policy that will address the core and legitimate concerns of people across the country while not taking the drastic step of eliminating law enforcement altogether? You know, I, I think you're going to see at least some communities, because again, this this is, has to be done largely on a local scale. Yes. Uh, instead of on this broad sweeping federal scale, I, I think you will see a lot of communities take this seriously. And especially if we can sort of get past this major roadblock, this hurdle of the language that we're using of saying defunding the police that I, I really think is unfortunate because it's getting in the yes. way of that broader, more constructive discussion about how do we rethink and reform policing in the United States. So I think once we can get past that, I think there is a lot of hope for you know, broad consensus, broad support for very needed and important and necessary steps for reform in this country. Amy Swearer, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Amy is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We were talking with Amy Swearer in our last segment about uh, the defund police movement. Well, in Portland, Mayor Ted Wheeler pledged the city's going to divert $12 million from the police bureau and other city departments to directly support communities of color. They're going to defund three police units, including the gun violence reduction team and ban officers from using chokeholds as part of plans to reform the Portland Police Bureau in a press conference held by the mayor uh, yesterday. Well, during the news conference, uh, Wheeler said uh, details of these plans and others are in the works and that Portland's black community has demanded the changes for years. The mayor acknowledged that he should have acted sooner. My privilege as a white man, my privilege as a mayor and the leader of the... I'm so incredibly tired of that phrase being applied... 
but that's just me. Uh, anyway, he goes on, in this community, I believe, shielded me from time to time from the many difficult and uncomfortable truths about our history and about our society. That may well be true. Um, I, I'm wondering, however, if he's going to deal with some of the key and core issues uh, that have made it very difficult, if not impossible, to remove bad apples when they appear. Anyway, the news comes after 12 uh, nights of protests throughout the city in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Over that time, community leaders from protesters to Portland commissioners Joe uh, and Hardesty, Chloe Udaley, have publicly called for reforms such as removing funding from the Portland Police Gun Violence Reduction Team and its school resource officers unit, as well as the Bureau's stake in multi-agency transit police division. They're all cited, all three units historically disproportionately impacting residents of color. Well, Portland Public School Superintendent, I've reported earlier, um, Mr. Guerrero, he announced last week that the city's police officers would no longer be assigned to the district's nine high schools. And on Monday, then Police Chief Jamie Resch, he announced that she is accepting a, a demotion as a step toward renewing public trust in the police agency. Then Lieutenant Chuck Lovell, who has been a Portland police officer since 2002, was named chief. Now, I don't know if this was cosmetic. I don't know if this was an act of valor or an act of cowardice. I don't know. I would prefer to look at the fruit that's born out of uh, these changes to make that determination. But these are all things that have happened in the wake of events here in our community. Well, it's unclear where the officers from all three units will be moved, those that are being defunded. Of the $12 million that uh, the, the mayor vowed would be invested in communities of color, $7 million would come from the police bureau and another $5 million from other not-yet-identified city funds, he said. The $7 million is less than 3% of the money currently slated to be budgeted by uh, for the police bureau. Well, the mayor also said that the city plans to make the Portland Committee on Community Engaged police, uh, Policing a permanent community oversight body, make uh, cases of intentional discrimination by police officers subject to some type of formal action, and support the Oregon Legislature's People of Color Caucus to advocate for statewide reforms and work toward banning qualified immunity. Uh, a legal doctrine that uh, grants police and other government officials broad protection from lawsuits. The mayor said police reform alone will not get rid of systematic institutional racism and white supremacy in the city, but said it was a start that be he believed would help lift the city and make everyone safer. I'm hoping these are going to be implemented thoughtfully, although I question um, the wisdom behind a couple of those initiatives. The mayor acknowledged that he can't end police units and redirect city money unilaterally, but he said he thinks that he has the support from the city council colleagues to make the changes. It takes three votes on the current four-member council to enact budget changes. So make note, if you want to weigh in on the course that the city of Portland has announced it intends to make, uh, Chief Lovell said... Um, Officers are currently banned from using chokeholds unless it's in the midst of life-saving situation. He said the maneuver is considered a deadly use of force by the police bureau, which requires incidents uh, where they are used on a person to be documented and reviewed. So it's already unlawful in uh, the city of Portland. He said um, he and Wheeler, I should say, also said it's uh, not immediately clear which police units or unit uh, would first respond to and investigate shootings in the city, the Portland uh, police Bureau reported more than 400 shootings in 2019. Well, in recent days, Hardesty and Udaley have also expressed interest in no longer ascending cannabis tax proceeds to the Police Bureau's traffic division. Wheeler on Tuesday named cannabis taxes as one of the sources of the $12 million in investment he hopes to make. So you can now 
uh, smoke pot and think you're doing something good for the community. Commissioner, uh, Commissioner Amanda Fritz has, hasn't publicly stated any specific police changes she favors, and her office didn't respond to uh, uh, requests for comments. But the uh, Portland City Council is scheduled to make amendments and vote today to adopt its annual budget, which was approved last month at $5.6 billion. The fiscal year ends July the 1st. In the current draft of the city's budget, the Police Bureau is slated to receive $244.6 million. The Police Bureau's current budget is $241.5 million. Uh, and the agency requests around $248.3 million for the upcoming year, mostly from increased general fund and recreational marijuana tax fund dollars, city records show. And again, those <clears throat> funds are likely to be diverted from police um, elsewhere. Meanwhile, in an act of altruism that you and I are paying for, the mayor of Portland is giving city employees a week of bereavement leave All city employees were given 40 hours of bereavement leave for space to grieve and reflect. Uh, This was on Monday. The mayor announced that uh, all city employees would be given this week um, after the city experienced more than a week of ongoing protests against police brutality and racism. Now, it wasn't just the city employees that had that experience. Some of us had protesters right in our front yard. As a nation and as a city, he says, we continue to grieve the recent loss of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmed Arbery, and others in the country and in our community. We acknowledge that black employees are experiencing a collective grief and trauma coming from a culmination of an oppression that is over 400 years old, he said in a citywide email to employees. I am directing managers and supervisors to approve the leave without question. The mayor said he hoped that other employers uh, in the community will take similar action and give their staff time to grieve and reflect. Well, they don't have the luxury of having tax money Um, They actually have to earn their money to pay their employees. The mayor went on to say, we're witnessing a dramatic shift in our nation, one that is urgently charting the path forward for restorative justice, inclusion and understanding. I feel tremendous responsibility as well as tremendous privilege to be a part of this historic movement. Thank you for walking that path with us as we continue to serve the city of Portland. Now, my concern is some of these initiatives are well-meaning. They're well-intended. They're designed uh, to address um, real grievances, but I'm concerned that they may not be well thought through, that they may have and will have unintended consequences and the very things that are necessary uh, to achieve the, the kinds of changes uh, that need to be in place to assure that we don't revisit this issue in the future, at least in our community, uh, are off the table. So I am concerned. Meanwhile, in Washington, the sister of a federal protective officer in Oakland who was fatally shot during a protest for George Floyd that turned violent told Congress uh, today that calls to defund the police are ridiculous. She went on to say it is ridiculous, a ridiculous solution to claim that defunding police departments is the solution to police brutality and discrimination because it's not a solution. It gets us nowhere as a nation and removes the safety net protection that every citizen deserves from their community's elected officials. That's a quote from Angela Underwood Jacobs uh, at the House Judiciary Committee hearing on proposed changes to police uh, practice on Capitol Hill. Uh, She is uh, from Lancaster, California. She's a city council member, and she gave an opening statement during the House Judiciary Committee hearing on proposed changes to police practices and um, accountability. She is African-American, and her brother, uh, Patrick Underwood, who's, of course, also African-American, was stationed in front of the U.S. courthouse in Oakland, California, 
in May when a vehicle pulled up the, uh, and opened fire at him and another contract security officer who both worked for Homeland Security's Federal Protective Services. Underwood was killed while the second officer was wounded. Also in that uh, hearing, former Secret Service agent Dan Bongino He testified before a House Judiciary Committee hearing on police reform, arguing that while it's important to hold police officers accountable for their actions, defunding police departments will result in chaos and destruction. He is a conservative commentator and Fox News contributor. He recognized that there are officers out there who aren't suited for the job and said he prays for justice for George Floyd's family. Floyd's brother testified earlier in the day, recalling in vivid detail how George pleaded for his life while the white officer knelt on his neck for nearly nine minutes. But Bongino, he insisted that most cops he knows are heroes who are committed to public safety and warned that they and the communities they serve will suffer if the recent movement to defund police departments is successful. But that is the course that we are seeing taken all across the country uh, in various uh, larger cities, mostly led by Democrats, and we'll see what happens. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we will wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the regathering of churches for in-person services is guarding a lot of attention, both with the religious and secular media are watching closely. Um, there are very few organizations other than churches that uh, meet as large groups every week, and the implications are significant, so it's understandable. Although in light of events that have taken place across the fruited plain in which large groups of people have gathered for protests with very little um, criticism does um, cause one to ponder. Well, most of the churches are cooperating with the local and state officials' desire to comply with their guidelines. The media is going to highlight adversarial relationships between churches and government, uh, but for the most part, churches are, when they are gathering or regathering, as is the case right now, they are following the prescribed guidelines. Early attendance, not surprisingly, is significantly lower than pre-quarantine era, partially because uh, there are limitations as to how many individuals can be in a particular facility, so that's not surprising. At this point, one half of the churches uh, surveyed have an attendance of about 60% or less than pre-quarantine numbers. And again, it depends on what church you're talking about, a large uh, mega church or a small church that uh, whose numbers wouldn't exceed the uh, requirement anyway. Uh, returning senior adults present a unique challenge for many church leaders as we endeavor to regain our fellowship with one another. Numerous reports uh, are uh, being cited that senior adults are among the most eager to return to in-person services. There's a lot of loneliness out there, but frankly, this trend is going contrary to the initial expectations. It was thought that most senior adults would be the last returning group because of potential health concerns, but as many of these older adults return, leaders are concerned how to minister to them spiritually and protect them physically. So that's a challenge that the church is facing. Also, the negative church members and naysayers are back. Uh, When the pandemic began, many churches had to uh, hit the pause button on a number of fronts and issues. One of the unintended positive uh, consequences was the pause taken by the negative church member. It has uh, been a blissful silence for some churches. Now that churches are planning to regather, the pause is lifted and the acrimony is back. God help us with that, thinking of John 17. And most churches are utilizing some type of extra service, at least for the short term, in order to um, 
observe social distancing. The regathering churches are adding space to allow for social distancing. Some are adding services. Others are adding overflow rooms. Some are uh, doing both or providing other creative solutions. The need for extra space has been exacerbated by children coming to the worship services who were previously segregated in their own age grade um, uh, area. But for certain, uh, the ways that churches are returning is changing regularly uh, and these findings uh, will undoubtedly change as more and more of us are given the opportunity to come together as the body of Christ. In the meantime, we are the body of Christ. We are the church, whether or not we are meeting regularly in a particular location. And it will be interesting to see the impact that these uh, these days will have on the Great Commission moving forward and our, our sense of community uh, as we regather I want to thank James Blind for engineering today's pro- no he produced today's program Clark engineered today's program they're doing a little bit of both to be quite honest James Blind I should say Dan Rice for the use of I don't know who's whom or where I am or what day it is but you get the idea Dan Rice for the use of his office hope you'll join us here tomorrow right here on the Georgine Rice Show and thanks for making us a part of your day have a great night thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show, and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.